0: somebody in property like whether you're a developer or just an investor or I don't know you might fulfill some other role in the industry you know you're dealing with people and their emotions and sometimes you can get some really time sensitive issues and you know those skills that, that the military teaches you are so invaluable in, in being able to deal with that and, and not pull your hair out going crazy over time.
1: This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyran Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with Lachlan Vidler, director of Atlas Property Group and an active investor with a wealth of knowledge. We hear about Vidler's time in the Royal Australian Navy and how he made the switch to management consultant for some huge global names. We also learn how he used his skills gained in the Navy to succeed in property. Fiedler started out his career as a warfare and logistics officer in the Navy, serving for six years. He then made the move into management consulting where he worked with the same big global names and this would ultimately lead him into the property investing space.
0: I'm the director of Atlas Property Group, uh, an exclusive buyer's agency. And uh, like you said, I've done a little bit. I started my my working life in the Navy as a a warfare and logistics officer. And I then went and became a management consultant with some of the big global names. Uh, And now I run my own buyer's agency.
1: A typical day for Villa involves a lot of work surrounding his buyer's agency. He considers this a full-time job in itself especially since it's still in its early stages as it was founded in 2019.
0: It takes a lot of time and effort and basically my day, uh, it sort of varies but, but the, big, the big segments that usually are always involved is um, chatting with clients, chatting with agents, uh, prospecting with future clients or future business partners. And of course, like any good job, lots of admin.
1: I've been going on this sort of um, spree of just learning a little bit more about future technology and listening to all these different podcasts about the future of say AI and also the future of technology and it just goes to show like how much technology impacts us and in influences but then there's all this other back-end stuff that we do that we don't see behind the scenes and it's always admin whether it be emails chasing, following our paperwork, contract signing. I have a hunch of those kind of things and even after say for example, this episode, there's still a lot of admin stuff that people don't see that goes into getting the podcast edited out there so I totally understand it. admin is just part and part of daily life. I reckon if I could have a full-time assistant just doing that, I think there'll be more than enough of them to keep them busy.
0: I could not agree more. I mean, I think you're right, you know, um, AI and technology has helped out so much like I mean. You know, nowadays, we're at the point where we can sign almost all documents online and like how much time saving is that without having to post to physically sign it, maybe you got to scan it. I think that's one great advancement we've had but um, I'm with you, I'd love to have a uh, personal assistant come in and uh, be able to help out.
1: His upbringing differs from many as his parents were quite big in business. This meant that Villa moved around a lot as a child as often as his parents got new jobs. I
0: think I ended up going to 10 primary schools uh, before year 5 and that was in Sydney, that was in Melbourne, Brisbane, Auckland. So, I moved around quite a lot and I went to a couple of those cities more than one time as well.
1: Wow, how that worked? Does that mean that halfway through school or halfway through the year, you'd actually leave and then move to another school?
0: Yeah, sometimes I can, uh, you know, I'd, I'd leave, I don't know, Brisbane on a Friday and then I'd be starting Monday in Melbourne or Sydney.
1: Fidler followed in his father's footsteps unintentionally which meant he moved around a lot and found it to be character building.
0: He was uh, in sort of senior management roles of different companies. So it could be that you know he might have got another promotion or it might have been that um, he changed businesses or something like that. But it just meant that um, and my my mother as well. So it just sort of meant that um, we were constantly moving for sort of a lot of my early years. But um, uh, I I look back at the time, I think when you're a kid and you're sort of moving and losing your friends, you get a bit unhappy and sad about it. But looking back, it taught me so many great skills about being personable and how to make new friendships and relationships. And to be honest, it probably has helped out so much with what I do now.
1: Yeah, I, I can understand. I, I mean, I, did, I didn't move that much when I was in primary school but I did move three times when I was in primary school. That's why I can relate to that and it did you know, change things and that stability for me was a little bit... I guess I'm um, confronting as well but I guess it was definitely a good thing when I look back at it. I did make a lot of new friends, different schools, different environments and you learn to adapt extremely quickly especially when you're young at that age. I don't know what it'd be like for my kids
0: because
1: uh, any change for them, they just you know, throw a tantrum. Uh,
0: I think a little bit of uh, healthy resilience is, is great for kids, you know. it. Uh, yeah, I think um, I wouldn't wish my 10 moves on anybody, I think.
1: After years of moving around the country, Fiddler's family eventually decided to settle down. In the years to come, Fiddler would experience a similar lifestyle in the navy.
0: No, so uh, we did end up settling down, and, and we sort of settled in Sydney, um, which was really great because a lot of my my family were in Sydney, and we, you know, just sort of went back into the local community. And although I hadn't, you know, grown up there for the the previous ten or twelve years. Um, It was good getting back with family and some of the friends I I had had prior and um, you know I think a lot of people love Sydney and I certainly love Sydney so um, it was a great place to finally sort of have the waters calm.
1: This change in lifestyle was brought on by a lull of sorts in the business world. Bitless parents had found roles that they were able to settle into and were less affected by the erratic nature of business.
0: I think it was just uh, a little bit of um, settling within the business world you know it was sort of um, I think they finally both just found some roles that they were able to settle into and then you know the other factors that come into being in business didn't affect them as much anymore and and we were just able to um, yeah settle down and I, and I think they'd sort of also got to the point where they said not only are we sick of moving we're sick of moving the kids and uh, you know, it'd be great to just sort of have some stability back in all of our lives.
1: I can totally understand from the parents' point of view as well too because it is quite quite challenging every time you lift up, pack everything, move again. You know, I've moved a few times already with my kids and my child who's now six, he's probably moved about four times to different houses in the last six years uh, just because, you know, there's been changes. You know, I'm a rent investor and Sometimes, you know, places just decide that they want to sell the property. I'm like, oh, come on, guys. <laughs> you told us it's going to be a long term tenancy. So, you know, sometimes it happens not from our, but external impacts and so forth. So, yeah, but it's been good. I mean, we finally settled down in one place that we love to stay in and are happy once again as well. Well, it's really interesting. So, you've been through primary school, high school. Um, what happened after high school? Did you go out to do further studies or did you actually jump into the workforce?
0: Well, I mean I I sort of did both. I mean I studied pretty quickly after high school but uh, I I pretty much went into the Navy as well. So I did a lot of my study when I was in the Navy but uh, I joined joined the Navy at 18 years and I don't know, maybe 100 days. So I was very green, very fresh uh, but I was excited to be there. So it was a lot of fun.
1: When it came time to enter the workforce after high school, Joining the Navy just felt like the right choice for Vidler. The valuable lessons and skills that he had learned as a child would aid him in this role.
0: I never wanted to dig holes so the army was was not going to be for me and uh, I didn't know whether I wanted to be a pilot or not so I thought oh well in the Air Force you only fly planes and if you don't fly planes, what else are you going to do? And you know, spending a lot of my time growing up in Sydney eventually when we settled down. Uh, I loved the water. I loved being on it. I always loved, you know, going to Queensland for holidays and the beach and things like that. So I sort of went, oh well, the navy is sort of the last one left, and maybe I should have a look at have a look at the navy and see what I could come up with. And ended up liking what I saw and and jumping into it.
1: The application process for Vidler in joining the navy didn't largely differ from other regular jobs. However, because he was signing up to become an officer. It certainly made it a lengthier process.
0: It's like a lot of jobs, you know, you, you go in and you have an interview, um, you do an aptitude test for example. So, they sort of get an idea of what um, jobs you may or may not have the capacity to do and then from the jobs that you get told you can do, you then pick ones that you want to do further interviews for or further testing. So, um, you know, you do more maths testing, more physics, more um, coordination, things like that. And then you just sort of keep interviewing like a normal job um, process. But um, because I was joining as an officer, I had to do my last interview in Canberra. So we got flown from Sydney down to Canberra and we sat uh, on a board and we had three senior Navy officers in front of us. And we were all, you know, 16, 17, 18 year old kids. And they just drilled us with questions for, you know, an hour, an hour and a half. Um, to understand what, what we were about, what we were motivi- motivated by, why we were looking to join um, and then you either were recommended or you weren't after that.
1: Gosh, that must have been quite intimidating especially at that age. I can understand different story when you're 30 or 40 when you've been through that experience but at such a young age, it's almost like you know, you got a round table of parents <laughs> interrogating you.
0: Oh, absolutely but I mean I, even chatting with you now and I sort of think back on it because it was so many years ago now. I probably have to credit some of the ability to do that from, you know, moving around so so much. You know, I mean, I could go into a room even at 18 or 17 and be able to talk with people that I didn't know and that, you know, might be 20 or 30 years older than me. And, you know, obviously you feel uncomfortable still, but I think I probably felt more comfortable than some of my peers who might not have, you know, had the opportunity to develop some of those skills as much as I had.
1: Yeah, and, and it really does go to show because I think when you learn these skills or, or I guess get put into the deep end, especially when you've been traveling around, you, you develop all these great um, communication and social skills, it really helps you know for the long term as well. You mentioned about an officer. Can we just take a step back? I may have missed something but you mentioned you're an officer before you, you went to actually apply for this job. How did that happen or how did you become an officer first?
0: In the military, you, you've, usually, you've got two pathways. So, you join as an enlisted person or you join as an officer. And you know, very broadly speaking, um, the the most junior-ranked officer is technically uh, a higher rank than the most senior enlisted person. So you can imagine then you, you're going to have people like me who are 18 who are technically had a, had a higher rank than people who might be 40, 50, 60 years old. And that's why the application process is a little bit more rigorous for officers because I want to make sure that they're getting people who can lead or have you know, maybe not leaders at that time because you could be very young, but the capacity to be able to learn how to do that and have the ability to learn how to do it. So um, that's sort of the difference between officer and enlisted. And I mean, for me, the reason I wanted to, wanted to go down that pathway was, you know, I always enjoyed, um, you know, leading like in sports or at school. Um, You know, I, I always felt I could communicate quite well and speak to people and I liked being able to be someone who made decisions and wasn't necessarily someone who always had to follow as much you know so um you know that's that's a very simple sort of explanation about the dynamics of rank in the military but for me that was why I made the decision to go down the officer pathway as opposed to the enlisted pathway
1: Coming up after the break, we hear about how Hitler completed his master's in finance while in the Navy out at sea.
0: I was doing a, uh, a little bit of study for my finance masters and I was actually deployed in the um, Southeast Asia region and we were going through the South China Sea and it's uh, for, for the listeners out there, you know, uh, it's a little bit of a contested area, you know, it's still quite safe and everything's fine but there's a lot of um, countries up there that, you um, feel that they deserve the rights to some of the ocean.
1: His role as a logistics officer.
0: I think a lot of people probably get the broad idea of what that is, but that's, you know, it, it's dealing with all the moving parts of, you know, food and fuel and moving the ships to different ports.
1: He switched to management consulting.
0: Consulting was such a, a natural fit for me because it sort of took on some of the unpredictability and of, of the Navy where you could be just doing, you know, you don't do the same job for 12, 18, 24 months, like you get that variation. Um, and you get to do a lot of problem solving and you get, um, you know, you get to meet such interesting people. And that's
1: next. I'm Taran Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. Mm-hmm. Villa explains that in order to become an officer in the Navy, he needs to have completed a few criterias.
0: You do an application process, just like any other normal job. I think you can start it at 16, maybe, um, and and you just go along the along the road. But um, for example, to to be an officer, you had to have finished year 12. So I could never have gone. I could never have started that job, you know, while I was at high school. You know, maybe some people might think of it as like a trade. I couldn't do it that way because you had to have finished year 12. Um, to be able to join as an officer, so no, I did the application process in my last couple of years of high school, but um, I didn't officially join until after I'd you know finished the HSC and done all that.
1: Wow, there's so much in, involved in this. I, I've I've spoken to at least three people who I had on the podcast who have been in army, and they've had some amazing stories and you know, a lot of them have been very, very successful as well in what they do because the discipline, the training that they get out of, you know, all the Navy or the Army training that they've been through has definitely impacted on how they've been able to live their life as well especially in say for example, being a property developer, there's just so many moving parts in that. Um, it's helped that particular person, you know, to be able to achieve the success that they've had. And uh, it, it, I guess it's just really phenomenal because I, I seem to see that people who have actually come out from the Army, speci- specifically from You know what their training has, they've actually been able to perform at a much higher level than most of us has because I think the training is so intense that it helps you get those skills. Has that been what you found as well since actually leaving the Army or leaving the Navy?
0: Absolutely. I think when I look back on a lot of the training and a lot of the experiences I had, you know, I mean, it's certainly not like the movies, you know, we're not all trained up like Navy SEALs or something like that but the level of training and the things that we do receive and that we are involved in, um, I, I think that so much of my success, I can trace back to what I learned there and what I trained in there. From my perspective, you know, you, you're not always going 100% in, in the outside world, world or even in the military, but something that the military is really good at training and teaching you how to do is when you have to sort of turn it on and raise your level of performance or take on those really high levels of stress, you learn really great methods of dealing with it, How to break down problems um how to think up solutions and for me i think that's probably the biggest thing that i've taken away from my career in the navy is is those skills and and i think for somebody in property like whether you're a developer or just an investor or i don't know you might fulfill some other role in the industry you know you're dealing with people and their emotions and sometimes you can get some really time sensitive issues and, you know, those skills that, that the military teaches you are so invaluable in, in being able to deal with that and and not pull your hair out going crazy over time.
1: Although Villa enjoyed this time in the Navy and the training and experiences he gained throughout, he always intended to leave at some stage.
0: Um, I originally joined as a maritime warfare officer and that that's the person who, uh, the easiest way to describe it is they're the person who sort of drives the ship. They don't physically... Have their hand on the on the wheel, but they're the person standing behind that gives the directions to that person on where to go, things like that. Um, so that was that was the that was where I first started. But um, I, I have a bachelor of business degree from UNSW, and I wanted to utilize that a little bit more. and And I, I then went on to do some further study, also through UNSW. I did a finance master's degree, and as I was sort of starting to come towards the back end of what ended up being my career in the navy i sort of wanted to do something that was going to be able to allow me to transition a little bit better um i I didn't actually expect to leave at six years when i did but you know i knew i was never going to stay for 30 or 40 years so i wanted to move into a role that was going to be able to um give me better skills that were more transferable on the outside so i i changed and became a logistics officer um so you know i'm I think a lot of people will probably get the broad idea of what that is, but that's, you know, it's dealing with all the moving parts of, you know, food and fuel and moving the ships to different ports, um, all the logistical elements that go into that. So it was amazing for my planning skills and my problem solving skills and things like that. But um, yeah, I guess while I was in, you know, I had some really great experiences. I I deployed on two operations. Um, I served on four different ships. So I, I, went, I, I was on ships that were out of Sydney, ships that were out of Darwin. Um, I had, you know, I had such a great experience. Um, I think one of my, one of the ones I always look back on is I was, I was doing a, uh, a little bit of study for my finance masters and I was actually deployed in the um, Southeast Asia region and we were going through the South China Sea. And it's, uh, for, for the listeners out there, you know, uh, it's a little bit of a contested area, you know, it's still quite safe, and everything's fine. But there's a lot of um, countries up there that um, feel that they deserve the rights to some of the ocean. And because of that, it can get a little bit contested and there can be a lot of ships up there. So it was um, looking back, it was just it was such an interesting experience, you know, um, being on the ship in that sort of area and then having to go back to my rack and uh, do a bit of math study and work out you know, how to work out the price of a bond or how to work out how to value a property, you know, it was just it's such a, such a polar opposite experience, you know, one minute of the, day, of the day to the other. So, that's probably one of the, the big memories that stick out for me.
1: That makes it really interesting. So, you're concurrently studying a Bachelor of Business at UNSW. So, this was sort of correspondence whilst actually out on the Navy.
0: I was sort of in the tail end of that and I had a couple of subjects to go and I thought oh, I'm going to be away for a while. Do I wait and prolong the degree even more or do I just try and do it while I was out there and I'm I'm glad that I tried to do it out there because it saved me a lot of time. But um, it it was certainly hard switching between Navy stuff to finance and investment stuff.
1: I could imagine. So, how long were you out on sea normally because there would be a proportion of time that you'd be back on land and then the other time you'd be out on the water.
0: It really depended on what was going on so, you know, for one, Um, for one trip you know the ship was gone for months and months and months but um, the ship is only as good as its people and people need food and things like that so usually um, from a navy perspective ships and this was part of my role as a logistics officer is that ships can actually go a lot longer than their people can and you often need to stop in different ports every few weeks because of things like food to be able to resupply the ship so um, yeah, you know, it really depended but it meant, you know, every two, three, four weeks. I think the longest I ever spent uh, between ports was about 6 weeks. Um, and then, yeah, when we came in, we certainly needed some food then.
1: That's a long time to be out there. I'm, I'm assuming submarines and, and naval ships are very similar or would they be a different thing? Because when you're under water, especially if you're going for the deep, it's quite hard to come back up all the time and, you know, dock and are they usually out much longer or about the same time?
0: I'll just have to speak a bit anecdotally. I, I never, I was never on subs, but you know, it, it's the same constraints. You know, it's always by food, it's always things like that. So submarines are the exact same. You know, they've got to make port every so often as well to be able to resupply. Um, but you know, they they have such a more stealthy role in the world. So. Their, um, their, the way that they're set up is so that they can do that role a little bit better than we can when we float on top of the water.
1: Like any other job, Villa's day to day on the ship varied. It might be spent preparing a plan for the next stop, and always entailed plenty of admin work.
0: But you might be dealing with contractors that you're going to have to deal with when you get into, I don't know, a port in Malaysia, for example, you know, you're going to need cranes, you're going to need food, you're going to need water, power, things like that. So you might be, you might spend the morning dealing with some of those logistical elements, then like any good job that we were chatting about, you're going to have some admin to follow up on after that, then, you know, you might spend a bit of time with your people, you know, getting around the different sub departments to see how everyone's going, see if people have got issues. Um, and then you know you'll want to have a bit of chill out time at the after you know 5 or 6 p.m. around dinner time you want to chill out a little bit there as well and, and get some sanity back and and then each day is so varied you know you might end up having to spend a whole day on admin or you might spend a whole day on Preparing for the next port. It just, um, it was always so different. It was so different.
1: It, it sounded like they were able to just go, okay, this is your responsibility. Um, we'll teach the skills how to be able to plan and manage and look for the things that you need to accomplish and achieve in terms of your goals. But you go out there and, and achieve whatever you need to do to meet those kind of goals. It wasn't like, you know, you had the set routine that you had to do every day.
0: Definitely. It was 100% like that. You know, I think. Um, yeah, you, you you had your um. We call it the left and rights of arc. So that that's that that gap between the left and the right of an arc is is where you you have responsibility for. It. It's a military saying, and um, and you know they wouldn't necessarily tell you how to do the things in that in that area of responsibility, but they'd say you just need to get them done. And um, you know you always. I mean, you always had support. You weren't just sitting out there. I wasn't just out there by myself going, oh no, what do I do if I don't know this. You always had support. You always had someone you could talk to, which was so invaluable, you know, being able to bounce ideas off people. I'm a big believer in, um, you know, collective thought and, and group thinking. Um, I think you get such a better result if you don't know the the answer to be able to take on the thoughts of a team. Um, and we always had that.
1: Yeah, I love that. And, and I'm, the, I, I'm the same. I, I think having collaborative approach is so important especially in the kind of role I play and, and work with as a project manager, there's no way that I'd be able to come up with all the solutions. That's why I have teams around me like BAs and uh, architects and so forth and get them to you know, bounce their ideas off and share you know what they know and, and tap on their expertise and then get the support to be able to come together and finalize the project and basically just guide them you know, in the right direction to get the achievement or the goal that we want to you know, meet as well too. It's fascinating. So, um, back then without internet, this is going back maybe you know, 20 years ago <laughs> with, with internet and stuff like that because did you have access to the internet? Because I, I, I'm assuming you know, it's, it's out in the middle of nowhere. Is, was internet access just as good or was it just you had to rely on once you no?
0: <laughs> no, it was definitely not as good. You, you certainly cannot sit there on YouTube or Netflix and watch a show. Not at all. But uh, no, we we did. I mean, there is internet, but you you get it from uh, satellites. So um, you know, as you're moving throughout the world, you'll get better reception, get worse reception. When when we left sort of the Australian coastal area, you know, maybe a couple of hundred nautical miles off the coast, you noticed that there was often a massive drop in connectivity, um, and it always made it difficult. Um, you know, it's just it's sort of the nature of the beast. You know, you can do emails; that's usually fine, but. Yeah, trying to get on the web to to be able to see different things, it, it can be it could be challenging, but um, it's something that I think will always be an issue for na- it's navies everywhere. I mean, it, it's it's boats anyway. You know, you could be on a you could be on a cruise ship and you're going to have similar issues. Um, but you know, with technology going at the pace that it is, I don't think it'll be too long before we get to a point where people can at least exist somewhat happily with the um, connection
1: out there. I guess the reason why I ask that question is, is it a necessity to have that connection because obviously, we're connected by cable, we're in the suburbs, you know, mobile reception is fantastic here, can't complain. It's like the norm, you know, you click on something and instantly you send the message off to whoever it is and you just get a response back, you can call and so forth but when you're out in the Navy, as you said, logistics officer, you've got to plan for contractors, you've got to actually get involved with whatever else you need to do for the important planning. Is that a necessity to actually have them communicate this quickly or is it whenever you get close to reception, you just send it off then and then just wait and then come back?
0: It's a mixed bag. Uh, You know, there's some stuff that so like the ships or uh, ships, there's phones all around the ship and most of the phones... Uh, for the internals of the ship. So like you can call another phone, but you can't call out. But on a ship, for example, there are always a few phones um, that can dial out that use... I think it used the satellite connection to dial out. And, for example, someone that does logistics or maybe the ship's captain, they might have a a need to be able to speak with those people. So you could do it that way. But um, the, the thing with internet was always... It, it's more about like keeping the crew happy and a bit of that mental health aspect, you know, being, being, being away from, like people don't go on it. Like, I mean, you can't get on eBay anyway because of, um, you know, like um, organizational blocks, for example, but um, people didn't want to do that. I mean, when you, when you leave home, people just want to be able to s- chat with their friends and family. And I mean, email is okay, but it's obviously, it's not instantaneous. So people, want to be able to get on their phone for example and go on facebook messenger and be able to just have a chat with their their partner or their family or their friends and it's it's definitely a, a massive mental health thing and um as technology improves and we can deliver a better service in in that aspect i think it will really help people dealing with the isolation of being away from home for so long
1: When leaving the Navy and finishing his master's in finance, Wittler returned into management consulting. Similar to his role as a logistics officer in the Navy, this role had an unpredictable nature.
0: I invested a lot um, in getting not just an education but a really good education and I did that because I, like, I always knew that I was never going to be in the Navy forever and I sort of when I was thinking about getting out, I looked around and I tried to think up some of the jobs that I wanted to go into. and I think consulting was such a a natural fit for me because it sort of took on some of the unpredictability and of of the navy where you could be just doing you know you don't do the same job for 12 18 24 months like you get that variation um and you get to do a lot of problem solving and you get um you know you get to meet such interesting people and i just had a really good opportunity where um I, i originally went to deloitte deloitte was my first company that i went to and and I just had a really good opportunity with them and I and I interviewed a couple of times and, and they kept inviting me back for more interviews and they seemed like they were interested in me. And then when I got the when I got the offer to join them, I thought, you know, like Deloitte is a global name. Like I'm about to go from being in the military, which you know, there's a bit of prestige about and people respect people that that join the military and come out of the military. But to be able to then have my first job out being with such a global name, like I couldn't pass that up. I had to I had to jump at it.
1: So, what exactly is a management consultant?
0: Of course. Well, I think so. The best way to describe a management consultant is that um, uh, organizations, companies, government, whatever it might be, might have some problems, or they might not necessarily have a problem, but they have something that they need help with. And they turn to consultants to come in and help them with that. So, obviously, you have a bit of expertise in the area that you deal with, but um, you sort of end up being a bit of a jack of all trades, master of none, and you get really good at problem solving. Um, you get really good at dealing with people at a senior level within organisations, and pretty much you're there to help them solve their issues.
1: That's great, and I, I, I'm really curious. Was there like frameworks and type of things that you need to come up with? Because you know, there's this the stock standard proposals, requests for you know quotes and tenders and those kind of things when you're actually managing and working the project. Um, I guess in your time and dealings, did you have those skills that you developed while you're in the Navy which you could transfer across into management consulting or did you actually pick up these new skills while you're working at Deloitte and you know, learn pretty much on the job?
0: Like problem solving to me is a pretty simple task, you know, like the, you can there's so many different methods and there's, and there's different frameworks and things like that. But at the core of it, you know, like for example, all problem solving is about breaking down a problem, working out the different parts and then working out a solution to those parts, you know, like it's a pretty simple concept. So I think coming out of the military, I had so many of those skills. I had like that way of trying to think about problems, which was great. But then going to a company like Deloitte, you know, they have their own um Frameworks like intellectual property frameworks, things like that, about how they like to deal with problems or how they might want to present solutions to problems. So it's sort of a mixed bag of all of it, really. You know, I I, I took what I knew, I adapted it for working in business, and um, you know, I sort of just went from there.
1: Yeah, excellent. How long were you at Deloitte for?
0: I only had a, a short stint with them. I was only there for about six months. Then I moved to my current company. Uh, Accenture, which is an, another really big name, and, I, and I'm doing similar work for them. So um, it's it's uh, been really interesting seeing the way different companies work. You know, even working within the same industry, um, but it's been such an interesting ride so far.
1: And doing the same thing at Accenture as well,
0: yeah. So uh, doing management consulting, and and I do I do quite a bit of work with government, for example. Um, but uh, yeah, much much the same work. Um, much the same, just looking at problems, breaking them down, and, and helping helping uh, organisations be better and more efficient and more effective.
1: So, inspired by Lachlan Vidler's journey, we'll keep the conversation going in a future episode of Property Investory. We will discuss the first property he invested in with the help of a buyer's agent.
0: They presented me with properties and I did did due diligence on top of their due diligence but being able to have that help first up taught me so much that I didn't have beforehand.
1: We'll also hear about his work in the development space.
0: The development we're in currently, it's a syndicated investment so we're on with a couple of other people. but that was more out of being able to leverage into a very, very high-value lucrative development that you know we couldn't fund by ourselves.
1: His most memorable investing moment?
0: The tenant had been calling the property manager for quite a number of times. And what it really was, was that they just didn't know how to turn it on.
1: And that's next time in a future episode of Property Investory.